through that whole long book, and more specifically through a subset of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. The passage I'm about to read to you and try my best to teach to you is going to be one of the weirdest passages for me or probably any pastor teacher to teach. I had the question, how am I supposed to teach this to you? Now, not because I don't understand what it's saying, but because of the irony that is just dripping from the main point of this teaching. In sum, I'm going to challenge you to beware of preachers who might be leading you astray. I'm a preacher. I'm telling you, beware of preachers. Do you not see the irony? Recently, I had a new person visit our church, and I was meeting and chatting with them, and they asked me in the series of a conversation, you know, I'm not sure I always agree with everything that I've heard you teach. I've listened to some of your messages online before visiting, and I've come to a couple services. Am I allowed to challenge your teaching based on the Bible? And of course I said no. <laughs> and everyone that laughed knows that that was sarcasm. I, I said yes, of course. In fact, the Bible highlights in the earliest days of Christianity that one of the most honorable groups of Christians were those who heard the teaching of the Apostle Paul who wrote half of the New Testament. And it says that when he taught the Bible, they did not just quickly assume that all that he said was true. They went back and they searched and examined the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. So I said, absolutely, be like those early Christians called the Bereans. Be a Berean. And then I said this to this person. Let's just say for the sake of my ego and illustration, just because we need to throw out a number, that 80 to 90% of everything I do and say on a Sunday is right on the money, 100%. Like that part of the 80% is just right on. Tone, accuracy, theological, application, etc. It's just perfect. But that means there's 10 to 20% every week that was just maybe a little off, hopefully not like way off, right? Like Hopefully you're not coming week after week because you're like, man, half the time this guy is just out there in la-la land, and yeah, I just keep coming back for more. It's like candy, you know? If that's you, then man, the irony, right? Like, here I am leading you astray. But let, let's just, for the sake of illustration, say that 80 to 90% of what I say on a general week is right on the money. But maybe this illustration didn't quite capture it accurately. Maybe this tone at one point was a little too harsh or too soft. Maybe there was a, a really needed word that I left out and should have said. Do you get what I'm saying? I am not a perfect teacher, and therefore, there will be times where I'm wrong. There's times where I think I'm saying the right thing in my head, but when it comes out of my mouth, I'm saying the opposite word, and I'll go back and listen to the recording and be like, oh my goodness. So like sometimes it's just unintentional. This week I was at dinner with my children, and we were talking about one of our college students that's back from Zambia. And I said, yeah, she lives in Zambia. And they all around the table said, you just said Genovia, which is not even a real place. And they were watching the Princess Diaries movies. <laughs> and I was like, what? I did not say Genovia. 
And they were like, arguing with me, yes, you did. Have you had those moments where like you're saying something like, no, I said this. And everyone else around you is like, no, you didn't. So likely, very likely, there are times where something is a little off. And I want you to know that with the sincerity of my heart, your pastor does not prepare sermons and think ahead of time. Now, at what point should I throw in a little heresy here or a little false teaching there or maybe just to check to see if they're really listening and not falling asleep? That's not what I do. I'm not sprinkling in a little Benny Hinn or prosperity gospel teaching to just check. But why I say all this is because this makes it a weird sermon to give for me because the main audience for this sermon are me. Like, this is a sermon that I'm preaching to myself but there is an application to you. And let me tell you that right from the start. You are to be an active listener and participant. The main thing Jesus is going to tell you to do is beware. Be on your guard. So when it's time for me to teach on a weekly basis, your job is expository listening. My job is expository preaching. Expository is just the word that means to explain or describe what's in the Bible. And we go through books of the Bible so that way I can just make the Bible the main content and substance of me describing and explaining the Bible. That's, that's what we do week in and week out. Your job is to be an expository listen, listener in such a way that you can then explain and describe what you have heard from the teaching. So friends, will you, right now, be a passive recipient or an active participant in the worship of preaching. Without further ado, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15, reading to verse 23. This can be found on page 812 in the Black Bibles. If you're not used to using a Bible, I'd encourage you to take the one out in front of you or the one in the back if you want to just grab one. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the little numbers are the verse numbers, and we're looking at a variety of passages this morning. So hopefully to know, I'm not making this up. I'm not a false prophet. I'm hoping not. Let's read this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, as an active participant, I want to try and help you with a visual aid. And I'm going to just have a few verses on the screen in a moment but also just the outline of this morning's message. If you want to take these two paragraphs, you should see on the slide the outline behind me. Part one, beware of 
the deceivers. We will know them by their fruits. You guys have the slides up there? Maybe not. Beware of the deceivers. We will know them by their fruits. That's the first part. The second part, beware of being deceived. We must know that Christ is our root. And that would be the outline for these two paragraphs. Yay, nay? No? Okay. Well, we will just have to follow along with your ears and apply the introduction. Part one, then. Beware of the deceivers. We will know them by their fruits. Chapter 7, verse 15 says, Beware of the false prophets. The word beware happens six times in Matthew's gospel. And here it's talking about beware of false prophets. Pseudo-propatane. Pseudo is where we get the word for something that's pseudo. Oh, wow. There it is. Good job, guys. Thank you. So, first part, beware of the deceivers, is talking about these pseudo-prophets. They are not fully bad, but not fully good. They're pseudo-prophets. The other times we see the word beware, see the next one is Matthew 6.1. Matthew 6.1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you read that section, you know he's talking about hypocrisy, where somebody who looks on the outside one way, but they're just acting and pretending. And that's what the word hypocrisy literally means. The next time we see beware is our passage, Matthew 7, 15, beware of the false prophets. Then the next time is Matthew 10, 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And then finally, the last time you see the word beware on the mouth of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is in Matthew 16. Three times it appears in this section, and two times in this one section, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. It's an illustration. It's a metaphor. But rather the leaven was a Jewish term to talk about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So beware of Pharisees, Sadducees, a teaching, men who will take you into the courts and flog you in synagogues for being a follower of Jesus. Beware of false prophets and beware of people who on the outside look like one thing, but inwardly they're very different. Do you see a consistent theme every time you hear the word beware in Matthew's gospel? It seems like what we're diving into here is a larger theme throughout Jesus' teaching. But it's not just Jesus' teaching. This is a larger theme throughout the whole Bible. You heard earlier in the service the passage that Joe read for us from Deuteronomy 18 about a prophet that would come and how to know if there was a true prophet or a false prophet. It's what I was saying downstairs. If I predicted that the donuts were going to come, and then if the donuts didn't come, if I did that in the name of the Lord, then I would have to be stoned to death, or maybe God would just kill me. That's why it was really good that the donuts came. Another passage like this is Deuteronomy chapter 13, and it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, or the sign or wonder that tells 
he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So just seeing if the prophecy or the miracle comes to fruition is not the only test. The other thing is who they're talking about, they received that power from. And that's why this is a helpful passage that goes with the Deuteronomy 18. Next, Jeremiah 14, 14. The Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you lying visions, worthless divinations, and the deceit of their own minds. That's the Old Testament, a sampling. Now, the New Testament, 2 Timothy 4, 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. This is a great word picture, isn't it? Their ears are itching. They want to hear something, and so they find teachers who will accumulate for themselves to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Second Peter is the next one in chapter 2. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing up upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And lastly, 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 3. One of the more clearer passages on helping understand who is and who is not a true prophet. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. How are you guys doing? Good morning. Welcome to Embassy Church. We are open-minded, and we love all, except false prophets. <laughs> if you did not catch the gist of this teaching throughout the whole Bible, and this is just a quick sampling. This is a major theme, not just in Jesus's teaching, but throughout almost every author of Scripture. It is not a one-off aside. Beware. This is intense, isn't it? I, I hope that you hear these words as intense. And if any of you are starting to ask, well, what's the big deal? Why would we care about people and their teaching? Let them say what they want to say and do what they're going to do. Think back to last week's message. The passage that comes right before this warning to beware, there was a previous warning about two paths. Beware. There's two kinds of paths that you could be walking on in your life. A narrow path that leads to life. And a wide path that leads to destruction. Beware. It is a big deal that there is a path that leads to destruction and that many people will find themselves on that path Beware that you're not one of them, that you're not being led astray by religious teachers who are encouraging you to follow the wide and easy path. For those of you who weren't here last week, or just to put this together, the wide path is not the irreligious people that don't go to church. It's the people from within the church. 
It's the people that look on the outside and on the surface like really godly people, which is why Jesus says the next thing he does in our text. He's saying, beware, because these false prophets are not immediately obvious. The wide and easy path was not immediately and obvious. That's why so many people took it. The wide path is a religious path. The wide path is full of people who knew their Bibles, pray for a long time, gave money to the poor, fast two times a week, and are religious people. That's who Jesus is talking to through the Sermon on the Mount. And those people do not think that they're on a way toward destruction. I mean, just imagine the illustration and say, oh, well, I'm going to go talk to somebody who's on the wide path. Hey, how are you? What's your name? Oh, nice to meet you. Where are you headed? Oh, I'm headed for destruction. Is that, is that what people do in their life? Especially religious people who are really convicted about their convictions in life and how they're supposed to live? Well, I believe this is going to lead me to a, a great and miserable life and ultimately eternity with judgment. Like, nobody does that. That's the whole point of what Jesus is saying is beware because you may not realize it when you're on the wide path and you're following a false prophet. This is why in his teaching here, he says, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They think that they're on the path to life. These deceivers are themselves deceived. It's a metaphor that has not been lost in translation from culture to culture. A lot of times when I'm teaching, it's like, all right, guys, I know this sounds really weird, but here's kind of the basic meaning of what's going on here. If I say wolf in sheep's clothing, I think you guys get it, right? A wolf is a predator. A sheep is an innocent agricultural, eat grass, gullible animal. A wolf in sheep's clothing means you've got a predator that looks on the outside like it's sweet and gullible and just a common everyday person in the church. Some wolves, some false teachers, many of them will look like sheep. They will look like followers of Jesus. They will look really nice on the outside, but their slippery, slippery and dangerous words will be corrosive like poison. They might even sound eloquent, but the substance of their message is destructive. Sometimes they use tricky language on purpose in order to draw you in and get you like a hook. They might have big churches best-selling books, they might say things like, how in the world could we be off or a false teacher if so many people are following us? Look how big our ministry is. Look how many books we have sold and how great God has blessed us. Would God bless us if this is how good things have gone? I did not make that up. I have heard things like that from people who I would not recommend you to listen to their ministry. And their defense is look at all that God has brought before them. I don't know if you're aware of this, if you're a gullible sheep, but as your shepherd, I want to help you be more aware. The Christian music industry has many wonderful people that are in it. But there are also marketers and people that are trying to make money. And so musicians will try and target the Christian community to sell more records by using certain phrases or words that even though they don't believe those things and don't actually have good theology, they know that they will get people who have those kind of beliefs 
to buy their records if they use certain words or phrases. It's, it's become a science. The same thing is with the publishing industry. I don't know if you realize, but Christians, on average, this is a statistical fact here in the Western world in America, Christians read and buy more books than non-Christians. Kind of makes sense when you think about even our own community. We're always encouraging you to read books and study and think and be a person of trying to pursue truth. So therefore, you get a bunch of people like that in a community or in a country. Shouldn't be surprised that they would be a potential target for certain publishers, certain authors to use language that sounds Christian, but really on the inside, it's, it's destructive teaching. And they're just trying to sell things to make money. A specific example is there's an author named Marcus Borg. My guess is most of you aren't really reading his stuff, but just as an illustration to share what I mean. He does not believe that Jesus rose again from the grave. Friends, if you're here today and you don't understand Christianity, that is central to being a Christian. We believe that Jesus died on a cross. He rose again three days after that death and ascended to heaven 40 days later, that Jesus is still alive right now. And without that, we really have nothing else to share with the world in terms of our message. This man, Marcus Borg, does not believe that the resurrection actually historically happened. But he writes books about Jesus and uses language of resurrection, and he will say, look, there's a resurrection that happens in all of our lives. And he will sound slippery and tricky, even though he doesn't even believe that the thing happened. That it's just a metaphor for a new life and a new start for a new day for you. Friends, this is the sort of thing that people are doing all around you. Are you discerning? Are you aware? Jesus is demanding and commanding us as followers to beware of such practices and teachers. But how can we know? What's the test? Jesus, in fact, gives us a test. Follow along as I read it again. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruits, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. If it's not apparent to you, this fruit metaphor is a metaphor of the character that comes out of someone's life. One per- Christian author, who who I don't think is a false teacher, has summarized what I just read to you this way. Be weary of the false preachers who smile a lot, but are dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off some way or another. Don't be impressed with their charisma. Look inside at their character. Who preachers are is the main thing. Not just what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. This is a timely message for Embassy Church. Not because I'm aware of a false prophet that needs to be pointed out, but because, Lord willing, next Sunday, for those of you especially who call this your church, You're a member. You have committed and covenanted with us. Next Sunday at 10 a.m., before we gather for worship, we have what we call a members meeting. 
At this members meeting, we've tried to inform you, and I'm doing it again to let you know that we're taking a vote to reaffirm two men in our church who have been elders, shepherds, teachers of our congregation, leading us in what we believe is the way of Jesus, to imitate their life and their teaching because they are examples to the rest of us for how to follow Jesus. Not perfectly, but humbly and repentantly. So we as a church have an opportunity to reaffirm them. And we have set limits, and I'll explain that in a moment. But in the meantime, as you're thinking this morning about this teaching, don't think of it as just some far-off thing or that this is not relevant. This is extremely relevant to you right now today. Because especially for those of you that will come gather with us next Sunday, you're going to be asked the question, do you affirm these two men? And many of you know them. We're a small enough church where this is not some person that's just a name or a face or throwing up pictures on the screen and say, hey, we're going to vote for this person. We're talking about Paul Seaman and Ryan Fellabom. They've lived and taught and had their lives observable for so many of you. Collectively as a church, we're going to ask, are they still living a way of life that is in accordance with what Scripture teaches for holding this particular office? So turn with me, if you would, real quick, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, I want you to see this with your own eyes and hear it with your active, participating ears. 1 Timothy 3 gives a list of qualifications for the office of the elder or overseer. In our understanding of the New Testament, there's three different words that are used interchangeably that mean the same position in the church leadership. And it's elder, overseer, or pastor. So follow along in chapter 3 on page 992. I'm going to read that first little paragraph. And I want you, as you're actively listening and reading, what do you observe Paul's main thrust is for what an elder pastor should look like? That's my question to you. Let's read it. And then I'll hopefully help you see it, if you don't. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall in to the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What was the thrust? It sounds similar to Jesus' teaching about a true versus false prophet. Should we elect officers who are successful businessmen as the determination? Well, they're just great leaders in the workplace. Should we elect elders because they're eloquent and they speak really well in front of people and their personality is just really on the outside and surface? 
Should we elect leaders who have certain education requirements, like a master's degree in theology, or doctorate level education, or anything of the like? A certain knowledge of the Bible. Now, it does say they need to be able to teach. That's mentioned. They can't be unknowledgeable about the Bible or God or Jesus. But what was the thrust? Their character, wasn't it? What was going on on the inside? And how that's being displayed on the outside? Very obvious, observable patterns of behavior that are flowing out of a heart that does not have repentance and humility and love for Christ over and above the things of this world. Turn a couple more pages, and I want to just read to you the other description of an elder. Titus chapter 1. Just be a few pages over. In the Black Bibles, it's 998, and there's a short paragraph again, and it's a similar context. There's different wording, but you're going to ask the same question. What is qualified of the elder? What's the thrust for people who serve in this position at Embassy Church if we want to be biblical? We want to really follow the teaching of Scripture. And so in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now here he uses a different word, and I said earlier, I think they're interchangeable. So what he's talking about in 1 Timothy 3, he used the word overseer, and here he uses the word elder. And I think it's just different synonyms for the same office. Because notice how similar now the list is. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Do you see again that he needs to be able to teach the Bible and have enough scriptural knowledge to discern if somebody is teaching false teaching or they're a false prophet? That needs to be a mark of this man's life. At the same time, what was the thrust? What was the main point? What's the main thing you should be thinking about when you appoint an elder? Their character, their godliness, their Christ-likeness. And again, it's not to say that everything about them or their families is in such perfect order. But take, for example, the more difficult passage in this text, where it says that their children must not be given over to insubordination or debauchery or be believers. We've done a whole teaching through this book of Titus a few years ago. You can still, I think, find it on our website if you'd like the nuances of that passage. But I want to just highlight the point that one of the reasons why this is so important and why you're to look at the whole family is because if you've ever noticed this, pastors' kids, elders' kids, people that are children of positions in leadership, as a broad, sweeping observation, oftentimes turn out to be bad Christians or not Christians at all. This is just like a, an anecdotal observation. It's not scientific. I was a pastor's kid, and look at how I've turned out. Again, sarcasm. <laughs> more often than not, honestly, more often than not, a lot of pastor's kids 
have struggled. If you've been around churches long enough, you know that what I'm talking about has probably some relevance of truth to it. So hopefully I'm an exception to the norm. But why might that be? Do you think that perhaps if you get somebody up on stage on a regular basis and they keep telling people how to live, but then they go home and they live the exact opposite way that their children are going to see right through that? And that if you look at the household and you look at their children and their children love them, respect them, their children want to follow Jesus and the model and example of their parents and aren't like, if that's what Christianity is, I want nothing to do with it. That should be an obvious sign something's wrong. Something that we can't see as we gather on a weekly basis, but the day-to-day living in that home seems a little off. And I remember a friend of mine who was afraid to become a pastor because he didn't want to have children that would then, you know, leave. He had a few young children, and he went around and he asked a bunch of pastor friends, like, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? Why is it that so many pastor's kids end up rebelling so terribly and end up just throwing away the faith altogether? And he was expecting to hear because of the long hours, because of the stress and demand of thinking about people's souls. And he said to a man, every person he got counsel from said is living authentic Christian lives in the home with your children, not neglecting them, loving them, and caring for them. They all said that's what they think the difference is between a pastor who has succeeded or done well in this area versus those that have struggled mightily. So your character matters, Ryan Fellabom, Kenny Eleazar, Paul Seaman, Philip Howell, preach to myself. It's weird, isn't it? Like, this is a message to me, but it is applicable to all of you. So let me give you three policies that Embassy has put in place practically that help you understand how we want to protect against false prophets so that you can know how we think through this from a biblical perspective. Number one, policy number one. When you read this text in either 1 Timothy or Titus or anywhere else in the New Testament, it is 100% of the time written in the plural form. Elders, overseers, there's an S on the end. It is in the plural form because as we understand it, Jesus did not appoint one man to oversee a church, but a collective group, a plurality of leaders. And we believe that that is an intentional marker, not just a little grammar note. Oh, fun fact, it's, it's plural is to protect and help one leader from having all of the power or control in a church. And therefore, if I go bad and I have all authority in the church, well, then the church is in bad shape. And there are many churches that find themselves in that sort of situation because the way they've set up and structured their church. So I want you to know that our policy is that we will always have at least two, ideally three, elders serving over you to be a checks and balances of the pastor, me, and be accountable to them, and then also so that they can be accountable to one another, and then ultimately to you all, which is our second policy. The elders do not have ultimate authority over the church. We have been delegated that authority from you all, the congregation, and this is what would be called congregationalism. It means that the highest rule of authority in this church is not a pastor or even the group of pastors. It is the congregation. And that is another checks and balance because you all, if you are active listeners and you're following Jesus' words to beware of false prophets, 
And beware of them coming from within. Beware of them looking like sheep. But as you get to know them and you spend time in their house and they have you over for a round-the-table meal this Friday, my house, 6.30, if you want to get to know me better, there's still room, can do so. We want to be that kind of people. What does it say? Hospitable. We want to be hospitable elders. Open our lives to you all. And I praise God that as far as I can tell and observe, our elders have been hospitable, all of them. And open themselves and their lives to you so you can see them inside and outside of the home. But you as a congregation are to do the work to get to know them and find out through your relationship. This is not like you need to be the police. It does not mean that your job is to be Mr. or Mrs. Let me look for every sin in their life. It's the general broad character qualities that you just heard of. Do you regularly see them passed out and drunk? Did you hear something in the local media about Paul Seaman having a DUI and he's going to be at the courthouse soon? I have not, but if you have, that would be relevant information before next Sunday. And I mean that in all sincerity. This is what it meant by saying you need to be to the outside world, commendable and above reproach. So congregation, will you take on your role to follow the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 7, to beware of false prophets and make sure that as we gather together on a regular basis, not just on Sundays, but all through the week, that your role will be to affirm and vote and make sure that if they are good, that they remain in the position. If they are not godly men, if they are not teaching God's word accurately, if their lives are not commendable and worthy of following and imitating, then we need to remove such men. Thirdly, we have, as a church, constitutionally taken a principle from wisdom that we don't think is in the Bible. The first two that I mentioned were, I think, from the Bible. This last policy is, we think, just wise practice. And it is that we have three-year terms for those pastors who have full-time jobs. Many of them will have families and responsibilities in the home and then are taking on the responsibility of doing the work of ministry and shepherding, which is much more than many servants and volunteers will do in the average church member position. Which means me, I am serving as a pastor. I do not have a term limit on my role as pastor. My term limits are if I resign because of some other reason that I need to leave, if I'm disqualified and you need to fire me, essentially, or if I die or retire, one of those kind of things. In the meantime, I get to work this job, and you all have graciously, generously provided for my salary. So that means I get to take care of my family, and I get to take care of you all through preaching and teaching and counseling and shepherding and discipling and doing the things that hopefully you've seen me do among you. These men, Paul Seaman, Ryan Fellabaum, and Kenny Eliezer, have committed to three-year terms to serve in this capacity because we do not want them to be burned out so that they then are just completely maxed out and then choose sinful things in that sort of state of exhaustion. We think it would be wise for people that are in that position to not be tempted or prone to weakness in a human sense because there's only so many things you can do for seasons. And after a time, many of you who serve as volunteers, have you not experienced just even maybe serving in a specific way in the church? That There's a grind. There's a grind for serving week in and week out. And so there's good reasons why we had serving Sunday this Sunday before we came upstairs. It's because there's a need for some people to take a step back. And then that means there'll be need for new volunteers to step up and have a rotative cycle of people who are serving 
And it's not just all about you coming to church and then hearing a sermon and singing some songs and then leaving and not contributing to this community. You need everybody to chip in, and at times you're going to chip in for a season, and then you need to pull back, and then you're going to chip back in and pull back, and that's how we want the elders to serve as well when they have full-time jobs and busy families. Those are three policies that we have already put in place, and we're asking you all next Sunday to consider whether or not another three-year term at most would be wise for these two men. On a personal note, I want to share that this has been a very, very challenging summer for me, not because I'm burnt out or exhausted, but because it seems like almost every week I have heard about a pastor or church leader in this community and outside of this community who have committed some sort of act of sinful, disqualifying disobedience. Some pastor, some person. I've heard of some that I I truly respect, too, and they have had to resign from their churches and leave their ministry posts. It has hit close to home in that sense. So as I teach these things, I am not trying to say them lightly or flippantly. It has grieved my soul. Almost every time I hear a story like that, it will take a few days for the almost shock factor or the heavy just burden or, or weight that you feel when you hear bad news, if you know what I'm talking about. And there's just that heaviness over your soul, this deep sorrow and sadness. And then there's this other side of it where there's this, Phil, don't let that happen to you. And then that's where it gets really weighty and heavy. And I don't have any sins to confess that I think disqualify me at this time. Praise God, at least as I can observe it. But I do want you to surround me and see if there's things I'm blind to. I don't want to be the kind of pastor That in all seriousness, if you were to say, well, can I challenge your teaching or your lifestyle? And me be like, no. So I want to invite that into my life in whichever way possible. Just recently, Christine and I had a long talk about ways that we could make sure that we're setting ourselves up for a long-term ministry in this community so that you all do not have to hear a story of, well, the elders have decided Phil needs to resign because he has disqualified himself and then fill in the blank. Let's pray for your elders. Please pray for me. And let's all, with humility, never think for a moment or say the words, oh, but that would never happen to us. That would never happen to our church. That would never happen to Phil or our elders. It's that pride that leads to prayerlessness, that leads to a lack of dependence upon God, and that spirit will surely lead to some sort of tragedy. So beware. Beware of the deceivers. We must know them by their fruits. Part two, it's briefer and shorter. I don't have as many personal side points for you. Beware of being deceived. We must know that Christ is our root. This comes from Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus talks about this phrase, Lord, Lord, some will come to me. So let me read it to you once more. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Simple question to close out this point in this sermon. 
Who are these people that Jesus is talking about? They are deceived. They think that they have a close relationship with Jesus. The reason he says not just one Lord, but Lord, Lord, is to show that in their minds, they view him as master, master. The repetition is to show the emphasis. Who are these people? Well, they're not just deceived. They're prophets. What are they doing? They're prophesying, they're casting out demons, and doing mighty works. They are leaders. They're not average church members. Too many times I think people have used this passage to make average Christians think that this is immediately applicable to you. And that Jesus is talking about you people. And that you might need to worry and wonder, am I truly saved? Could it be possible that I think that I'm doing things for God and, and really I don't know him? Now, of course that's a possibility. But I think you should first start where the Bible starts and start with that the application is to talk about the pseudo-prophets. The main point is to beware of the false prophets, those that may be very sincere, but they are deceived. And this passage should challenge us then to first think about our leaders and teachers, to not put confidence in how great their ministry is going, nor how well any of their fruits from the ministry, fruits from their characters, the first test. The second test we see in this text is the root of their knowledge and their relationship with Jesus. They said, Lord, Lord. Jesus says, I do not gnosko. That's the Greek word for no. Gnosko is the word that's used to translate marital intimacy that makes babies. The Greek word that's sometimes used to talk about the love between a child and their mom or dad. Do you see what kind of knowledge Jesus is talking about? Not head knowledge. It's not that you didn't know about Jesus. It's not that you didn't realize what the Bible taught. It was that it was only head knowledge at, the, at best, but not heart, intimacy, relationship. This is where we get the idea, if you've ever heard the phrase, do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? So the first section that we looked through was the fruit test. This is the root test. Is there a kind of doing that you have as a leader or teacher, even as a Christian, that is separated from knowing God in this way? If so, you're a deceived person. You do not have true follower of Jesus, marks of a true follower of Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Here's the flip side of this. Do you talk about the intimacy that you have and say, we, I love and I know Jesus and me and Jesus, we're tight. But then you don't actually do what he says. That, my friends, is the other side of this illustration, this test. Knowing leads to doing. The root bears the good fruit. So knowing that produces doing is the sort of follower of Jesus and the leader and teacher that should be listened to. Do you know Jesus like this? Leaders of embassy, we should know Jesus like this and be examples for others to follow so that they would know Jesus like this. The gospel message is that salvation is not do a bunch of things and come present them before me on that day, that great day of the Lord. That's what that reference is. For that day when they come before me, It'll be a great day when Jesus comes to establish all wrongs and make things right. And on that day, 
it says that if you present before the Lord all that you have done, say, get away. I, I, ne- I never knew you. But if you have a relationship that is rooted deep in your heart with Jesus, it will bear good fruit, and then you will both have the root and the fruit to show that your salvation was not by works, but it was confirmed by your good works. Or as some have said for the last 500 years, your salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, but that faith is never alone. It is always accompanied with a changed heart and a transformed life. So this morning, as we think about Jesus and his teaching, we think about how the heart is transformed with the relationship of Jesus and the root in the heart, ask yourself, did Jesus himself pass the test of the fruit? Can you recognize him by his fruits? Is he a true prophet? Is he worthy to listen to week in and week out? Is it worth your time to come back next week and hear another message from the words of Jesus? Or is he somebody who we should say, he's a false prophet? Was there ever a man who loved, cared, showed compassion to the hurting more than Jesus? Was there ever a man who had in his heart the greatest roots down deep into a relationship with the Father that it flowed out into a humbled sacrifice and a willing heart that gave his life to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you know that that's what Jesus is like and you know him in that way, you should not only conclude that he was the true prophet, but he is much more than a prophet. He is the Lord and master over all of the heavens and the earth. He is worthy of your allegiance, your faith, your trust, and your listening ear that you would hear him and discern all other teachings as false in comparison to him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Jesus, for his life and his example for us. We want to pray and thank you that he is the true prophet. And much greater than just a prophet. At least that, but much more. We thank you that because of Jesus' true words, his true teaching, his message, his life-transforming message of how a relationship with him will change and transform every area and aspect of our lives. I pray, God, that we would have true, genuine relationships with Jesus, that we would have a community of people that love and care for one another in such a way that we would be accountable to each other, we would rebuke and correct when necessary in a loving and gentle way, in a humility that says that we too are guilty and need to pull the plank out of our own eye before we look at the speck in our brother or sister's eye. God, would you help us to be these kind of people and therefore be protected from false teaching and false teachers. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.